our message today comes from the book of Numbers, chapter 21, uh, verses 4 to 9. And so if you guys have your Bibles or your phones, if you guys can open with me there. Um, and if you guys can all rise with me for the reading of God's word. For standing is in honor and is in respect to the word of God. And so from Numbers, chapter 21, verses 4 to 9. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of, up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And so Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. This is the word of the Lord. And would you guys can be seated, and would you guys pray with me now? Father in heaven, we um, come and we gather together as a body of Christ to worship your name and to sing your praises, to hear your word. Father, your word is sufficient and your word is enough. For your word tells us the ways to salvation, that it is not inside of anything that we can do, but it is through the blood of Christ shed upon the cross for our sake. And so, Lord, we pray that these words that I speak may not be my own, but, oh God, that it may be yours alone, and that it would fall upon fertile soil, that it would sprout and bear much fruit in the hearts of your people sitting before you today. Father, would you bless this time? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This past Monday um, was 4th of July, and the town, I live in a small town called Glenside, Pennsylvania, um, population of probably like 2,000, so very different from the big city that you guys are probably used to. And every year on the 4th of July, they throw a grand parade. It's a parade that, it's a huge spectacle. Everybody in the town gathers together, and it cuts across the main street of the entire town. And it's a grand event. Everyone gathers together. It's like an hour or two hours long. Um, And I typically enjoy these events. I um, like to go sit out, watch the parade go by. Um, Except this year, there was one small exception. My apartment building just so happened to be right in the middle of the main road of the town, right where the parade was happening. And so It happens that day that I was driving home from a church event, and right at that time, the parade happened to be starting. And so right as I drove into town, I saw all those signs of the detour of of, uh, turn this way, go down this road. All of these roads are closed. And the realization hit me that every road leading up to my house, to my apartment, was closed off, including the very spot that I had to park in. And so a drive that would have taken five minutes on any normal day actually took me 30 minutes as I looped around and around the entire town, it seemed, looking for an open street, looking for a way back to the promised land that was my apartment complex's parking garage. 
And this is the same situation that we find the Israelites in, in, this, in this passage that we read today. We read in verse 4 from our passage, From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And now if you guys are familiar with the Old Testament, if you guys are familiar with the stories of the Israelites, you'll know that the book of Exodus and Numbers, it's, it's a detailed account of Israel's journey out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land. And so Israel has been wandering in the desert for decades now, for, for all, close to 40 years. If you guys know, it's 40 years, but it's right at the end. That's where we find our passage today, right at the end. And so they've been wandering for years and years, and they're just about ready to be done with the journey. But God does not send them directly into the promised land. He doesn't say, welcome home, and with bright neon lights and points them into the promised land. But instead, God does something. He, takes, he doesn't take them on the shortest or the easiest road into the promised land of Canaan. In fact, God instead sends them on this long and arduous journey on the road back to the Red Sea. So essentially what he does is, if you guys, if you guys are unfamiliar with, with kind of what the... What, Israel, what Middle Eastern um, geography looks like, he essentially sends them the way they came. He essentially makes them continue to wander and basically take the long way around. He basically, so if you put on, if you put on Google Maps, it gives you the no toll road, which takes like three hours longer than the toll road. So he basically sends them on the no toll road. And so God was in essence backtracking Israel through some of the most desolate, dry, and dangerous parts of the desert and of the wilderness. And so in the minds of the people, they're taking two steps forward, but they're taking three steps back. And so you can probably imagine what's going on in the minds of these people. As they passed familiar landmarks that they probably passed 10 years ago, as they saw their old footprints in the sand, and as they were heading back towards the Red Sea, the Red Sea that God had split for them as they were leaving Egypt, they, were, they ended up coming back to the very same spot that they had started at. And so a great discouragement spread through the people and through the entire camp of Israel. And the discouragement led to impatience, their impatience to crankiness, their crankiness to downright rebellion against God. And in their rebellion, in the sin of the, of the people of Israel, we see the great consequences that were to come for the people of Israel. And we see the eventual need, Israel's great need for rescue and saving from ultimate death. Now, you might read a, read a story like this in the Old Testament. You might read this passage, and it might be pretty uncomfortable at least it was for me, especially because stories like this go completely against the idea that some of us might have of God in our minds. You see, because in our minds, sometimes God is loving, God is kind, he is faithful, he is forgiving, he is compassionate, he is all of these positive things and, and reminds you of all these positive emotions in your heart. But when you come across a story like this of a wrathful God, of an angry God, of a punishing God, it might cause you to wonder. Maybe you feel a little embarrassed even to talk to people about a God like this because you might feel like you need to apologize 
I'm sorry, this is my God. He is a wrathful and angry God. Or maybe you wait to bring your friend to church until, he, until your pastor is preaching from the New Testament and not the Old. Because oftentimes we see these stories and we see an angry and a wrathful God. But you see, even in a story of God's judgment like this, like the one that we just read, we can see and we can find the beauty of the gospel. We find the beauty of a God who is merciful and who is kind, who is compassionate, who is slow to anger. And so here is our main gospel truth, our main gospel point for this afternoon. We have all been affected by the poison of sin, but in faith, we can look to Jesus. We can look to Jesus, who is the ultimate antidote. And so let's see how this truth plays out in our passage in three different points. First, the poison of sin, the consequence of sin, and finally, the cure for sin. First, the poison of sin, the consequence of sin, and finally, the cure for our sin. First, the poison of sin. We see in verses 4 and 5 of our text, and the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. You see, up to this point, God has blessed the Israelites throughout their journey into the promised land. He's provided water. He's provided food. He's provided a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night to guide his people. And everything that the people have needed, he has faithfully provided for them. But you see, the Israelites, in their great discouragement and in their hopelessness, are led to rebel and to complain against God who had continuously, faithfully provided for them. And so we see, as we've seen so often, they begin to grumble, they begin to complain. They question God's holiness in leading them all of these years throughout the wilderness. They begin to question and grumble against God and his servant Moses. Manna again, the Israelites ask, we loathe this worthless food. And you might be wondering, was that really that bad of it? Was it really that big of a deal? Is grumbling and complaining about food that they've been eating, the same food that they've probably been eating for the past 40 years, is it that bad? But you see something is that the grumbling, the rebelling of the Israelites, it points to a much deeper issue of the heart. It's not just mere complaining and mere grumbling. It points to a much deeper issue of the heart. And this issue is still one that poisons all of our hearts today. Imagine you spend a great deal of time preparing a special meal for your significant other, maybe for your church friends, maybe for your best friend. Imagine you toil away in the kitchen behind the flame of a hot fire, and for hours and hours, you work and toil to prepare this grand meal. And then you lay it out in front of them. You lay it out in front of your friends, in front of your girlfriend or boyfriend or husband or wife. And then they say, I'm not eating this. This is absolutely disgusting. And they completely reject the food that you've labored tirelessly over. I hope none of you guys have experienced that. 
But you see, the rejection of, the rejection of this food that you've provided for them is not just simply a rejection of the food. It's a rejection of you, the person who prepared the food for them. That's why there's a deep sorrow. If it was just a rejection of the food that you provided, I don't think it would be that big of a deal. But you see, the rejection of the food that you worked so tirelessly over, that you, that you decided out of love to provide for, the, for your person, is a rejection of you, the person who provided the food. And so in the same way, the Israelites complaints, the Israelites grumbling, the Israelites rejection of the great provision of God was not merely a rejection of the provision of the food, but it reflected a heart issue. Their rejection of the provision ultimately reflected a rejection of the provider of the provision. They were saying that God, you do not know how to take care of us. They felt that they knew what they needed better than God, better than God himself, better than he did. And so they found themselves asking, was really God, was God really in charge of our lives? Did he even care about the difficulties that we're facing? And so there was a deep disappointment, a deep sense of disappointment ingrained into their hearts. They were wholly dissatisfied with what they had. And you see, this deep-rooted heart issue is not some far-removed thing that we observe as outsiders. You see, all of us are affected by this very same poison that was in the hearts of all of the Israelites. For this is a very picture of our very own souls. You see, just as the Israelites were, there's a sense of deep dissatisfaction in all of our hearts. Because deep inside, the poison of sin, the deep and dark poison of sin courses through all of us and none of us can get away from it. Because you see, ultimately, sin stems from a place of dissatisfaction, of trying to take matters into our own hands and out of God's sovereign control. Think about it. Isn't this why we are always looking and working hard to find some kind of sense of worth in this world. Maybe you look for it in the career, in your career or your job title. Maybe it's in what college you're going to get accepted into. Maybe it's what college you went to. Maybe it's in your status or your pedigree in the world. Maybe it's your income or your relationship status. Maybe it's the deep-rooted desire to be better than the person next to you or better than your brother or sister. And where does this all come from? Where does this deep dissatisfaction come from? You see, if we go back all the way to the beginning of the Bible, we see another story of a serpent. In Genesis 3, we see another story of a snake. And what does he do? He tempts us of this thirst of this ultimate dissatisfaction. The serpent tells Eve in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God really say, did God really say not to touch that? He says to them, forget about what God has given you. Forget about all the things in the garden that God has graciously provided for you. Forget about what you have. 
if you listen to me, if you listen to what I'm telling you, you can become like God. In fact, you can take his very place. And this, this control was the greatest temptation for Adam and Eve being in the garden, being in the very presence of God was not enough. They were deeply dissatisfied. And so ever since the garden, ever since the entrance of sin into the world, we have all been tainted by this. We have all been poisoned by the deep dissatisfaction of our hearts. Because we tried to control our lives, we lost control. Because we tried to become more of ourselves, we became less of ourselves. We have been removed from the presence of God and are constantly thirsting and craving for answers for some way to satisfy our deep desires. And so we do everything and anything to try and fill this gaping hole in our lives. But still, no matter what we do, the great poison of sin still flows and courses through all of us. And so ever since the garden, just as the Israelites were, you too have been tainted by this same poison. And this poison does not come without consequence. You see, there's an eventual outcome for all who have sinned against God And we see this in our second point, the very consequence of sin. If you look with me in verse 6, it says, Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. You see, God sees the sin of the Israelites, the grumbling of the Israelites, and God delivers judgment upon them for their unfaithfulness and for their sin. The Israelites ultimately had to pay a penalty for defying God's commandments. And so God sends fiery serpents. He sends serpents to bring judgment upon the people of Israel. The people have rejected a blessing from heaven, and so now they receive a curse from the desert. They were offered nourishment. They were offered life in the form of bread from heaven but they rejected it and received disease and death from snakes. So God sends punishment for the very sin of the people. And the people of Israel rejected his grace and his great provisions, and so they must face his judgment and his wrath. Now some of you might be wondering, how does that make sense? Shouldn't the punishment at least be proportionate to the wrong committed? It's like if you went to a, a store and, you, and someone stole something and, and you got life in jail for it, for a petty crime. Shouldn't the punishment be proportionate to the crime committed? All that the Israelites did was complain about just some food. How was the punishment of death fair compared to what they did. But you see, the thing is, as we looked at earlier, the grumbling of the Israelites was not just simple grumbling, but it reflected a deep-rooted sinfulness of their hearts. It reflected their lack of faith in a sovereign God 
It reflected their desires to take matters into their own hands. Their actions were not just sinful actions, but it rather it was a reflection of their sinful hearts. It was not just sinful actions from an otherwise good people, but it was a reflection of their deep-rooted sinful hearts. It was a sinful action from a sinful people. And the consequence that the people faced is exactly what is deserving of a people who are unholy and unfaithful to a holy and faithful God. You see, all who have been tainted by this poison of sin, all who have fallen short of the glory of God, all who have been unholy against the holy God, deserve death and deserve ultimate judgment from the wrath of God. You see, Romans chapter 6.23 tells us, for the wages of sin is death. The consequence of sin, then, is ultimately death. And these fiery serpents are, are, are the perfect picture of this consequence. The fiery serpents were not called fiery serpents because they were, like, they were literally on fire, but rather because their venom, when, when, when the snake would bite you, you would feel this, this fire course through your veins until you died. So it was a gruesome death. It was a death of thirst. And so the venom that ended up in the bloodstream of the people and ended up killing them gives us a great image of the deadliness of the poison of sin in our lives. Once the people were bitten, the doom was certain. There was no bomb. There was no cure. There was no, was no sucking out the venom and trying to spit it out. Their, the, their death was certain. Their doom was certain. It was just a matter of time until they died. And so in the same way, everyone who has been bitten by the poison of sin, their ultimate goal, their ultimate end is death and doom is certain. So the consequence is fit for the wrongdoing. And so this means us too, you too, who have been bitten by this poison of sin, deserve this fiery death that the Israelites experienced. You and I deserve the same judgment that God casted upon Israel. And if the story in Numbers were to just end there, if we just stopped right there and just said, oh, okay, we're all doomed to judgment once and for all, there would be no hope for us we would all be condemned to death as sinners as we are. But praise God that the story does not end there. Praise God that because God, because God was merciful, because God is a merciful and ever-loving God, God himself would provide a cure for the Israelites, an antidote for the venom of the bite of the fiery serpent, for the poison that would course through the veins and through the blood of all of the Israelites who are bitten by these snakes. And we see this in our third point, the cure for sin. The Israelites confess to Moses of their sins, and so Moses intercedes on behalf of the people, and God in his mercy provides a great rescue for his people. 
You see, in verses 8 and 9 we read, And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. In the depths of their sin, in the hopelessness of their sin, the people of Israel, Israel cry out to God. And God, in his great faithfulness and love to his people, provides yet again and pours out yet again an overflow of mercy. You see, yes, God did deliver judgment and God did deliver deserved judgment upon the people who had sinned against him. But then he delivered mercy and grace And this wasn't just backpedaling, this wasn't flip-flopping, this wasn't God suddenly changing his mind and suddenly being wishy-washy and being like, oh, I'm sorry, that was a mistake. But rather, it was his divine nature on full display for us to see. Because because he is holy, he must deal with our sin, otherwise he would not be a holy God. Because he is holy, he must deal with our sins. But because he is love, because God is love, he chooses to offer mercy. And this mercy comes in the form of a bronze serpent for the Israelites that God commands Moses to build and set upon a pole. There was no human cure. There was no human remedy for the bite of the fiery serpents. But there was a hope for the people. For it was God himself Not any human, but it was God himself who provided the cure. It was God himself who provided the antidote for the venom of the the fiery serpent. And once the bronze serpent had been set upon a pole, everyone who looked at the bronze serpent would live and would be cured. The venom of the snake, the venom of the fiery snakes would no longer affect them. And notice that God doesn't simply remove the snakes from the camp. I'm sure the Israelites were asking God to get rid of these snakes, to to send fire from heaven, to burn all these snakes away. However, this is not the solution that God provides for the people. The fiery snakes were still there. God doesn't rid rid the camp of the fiery snakes. And the consequences of sin still remained with the Israelites. They were still bitten and they still felt the fiery poison. But what God did provide for them was salvation from death, was a way to be saved from death. He allowed the Israelites who trusted God to avoid perishing, to avoid dying as a result of their sin. And all that it would take, all that it would take to be saved was to look was to look at a bronze serpent. It was as simple as that. Anyone who simply looked at the bronze serpent would live and would be healed. And the interesting thing to note here is that God commands Moses to make a serpent that is made out of bronze. Now you see in the Old Testament, while gold symbolizes the greatness and the holiness of God, bronze was often used to symbolize God's wrath and God's judgment. And additionally, serpents are also used to represent sin, to represent temptation, to represent evil. I mean, even just a few moments ago, 
God uses serpents to cast judgment on the people of Israel. So it's a touch ironic that the very instruments that God uses to save the people is not some kind of medicine, but rather God uses the very same thing that he used to judge people in order to save the people. The very instrument that he used to to judge the people, to cast judgment, is the very same instrument that he uses to save the people. The very object that would cure the Israelites of the curse was shaped into the likeness of the very thing that wounded them. But imagine with me for a second. Imagine with me if you were in the Israelite camp. Imagine what you would think when, when you heard this. Imagine when they heard that instead of getting some kind of medicine for their, for their wounds, they would need to look upon a bronze serpent, the very image of the thing that was killing people all around them and that probably had bitten you as well. So while you're laying in bed, feeling the course of, of the, feeling the fire and the burn of the serpent coursing through you, it wasn't some kind of medicine, but someone told you, You have to go outside and look at a bronze serpent. Look at a snake. I mean, talk about PTSD. It's like if you got bit by a mosquito. Imagine you got bit by a mosquito and instead of giving you itch cream or instead of giving you tiger bomb, imagine someone handed you a statue of a mosquito and said, look upon this mosquito and all of your itches will go away. How little would you have believed them? How bizarre of a request would this be? And I'm sure for the Israelites, it was just as unexplainable and just as puzzling. But you see, it was puzzling because the act of turning and looking was ultimately an act of faith. Turning to the symbol of sin and judgment in order to live required great faith in God And great faith in God's mercy and his desire for their good. With just a little bit of faith, by turning and looking to the bronze serpent, they would be saved. You see, the people were saved not by doing anything, not by building something, not by doing something, not by giving more offering, not by offering more incense at the altar, but by simply looking to the bronze serpent. They had to look at the raised brass serpents, not to their wounds, not to the dying that was going on or all around them, not to Moses, their leader, but at the raised serpent. They had to trust and have faith that something as seemingly as foolish as looking at a serpent on a pole was enough to save them of their sin and of their suffering and of their death. You see, the bronze serpent lifted up suggests that for those bitten by the serpent in the wilderness, the way to the promised land, the way to ultimate freedom was one of great faith and recommitment to God's ways. And so when the grumbling Israelites looked to the bronze serpent held high upon a pole, they were saved from the punishment that they so deserved. Mercifully, God uses the emblem of his judgment to draw his people back to himself. And that's great news. That is good news for them. 
But though the Israelites looked to the bronze serpent and were cured, this was only but a temporary cure for their sins. This was only a temporary cure for the poison of their sins that coursed through them. It wasn't enough to cure the deep-rooted issue of their heart. You see, the problem of sin still remained. And so the Israelites needed a more perfect antidote, a more perfect cure that would cure them once and for all. And for us, for us on this side of the cross, we know of something, of someone who is far greater than the bronze serpent that Moses built. We know of the ultimate cure, of the final cure to the venomous bite of sin. In the book of John, Jesus himself makes this very explicit connection. In John 3, 14 and 15, we read, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him must, may have eternal life. Just as Moses lifted up the bronze serpent, Jesus too was lifted up. He was lifted up and hung upon a cross. And just as God promised salvation for the people of Israel, for anyone who looked at the bronze serpent hanging upon a pole, Jesus promises eternal life. He promises an antidote for the poison of sin to those who, in faith, Look to the cross and look to him and look to the cross from which he hung. You see, Jesus went to the cross and suffered the poison of sin and the poison of the bite of the venomous snake and he suffered the full-on wrath of God's judgment that you so deserve. He who knew no sin became sin for your sake and gave himself up for destruction in order to wipe out all sin and all of its consequences. Just as the cure of the bite of the fiery snakes was a snake, the cure for, a human, the cure for human life is one man's life. The cure for death itself is death. And the only way to receive this cure, the only way to receive this antidote, to receive this cure is to look and believe, Jesus says. So in faith, look to the Savior hanging on that tree for you. And there's nothing you can do to add or subtract from what Jesus did for you upon that cross. The Israelites did not find their healing in themselves, but their healing came from something outside of them. They had to look up. They had to look away from themselves and to the salvation that God had provided for them. In the same way, friends, do not look up to your own works, to your own good, to your own righteousness to be saved, but rather in faith, look to the cross. Look to the Savior. Look to Jesus and believe. For everyone who looks in faith and believes will be saved. And there's nothing more that you need to do. Look to Jesus who was lifted up and died for your sin and see 
the depth of your fall, see the depth of your sin and the fate that you so deserve. But also look to Jesus and see the magnitude of his mercy, the enormity of his grace for you. See the victory of God that is accomplished for you through the healing of humanity's poisoned nature in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. Do you feel like you're in a battle against sin all the time? Maybe it's some kind of addiction that you have. Maybe it's a constant fighting with your parents or with a spouse or with a friend. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's a deep-seated jealousy in your heart. Maybe it's resenting a brother that is, or a sister who is sitting right next to you today. And you might think the solution for these things is within yourself and that you can do better or you can just work it out. Maybe you're thinking, if I just try a little bit more harder to fight against these sins, maybe if I try a little bit harder to fight against these addictions, I can fight and I can find a solution on my own. But Jesus gives us a much better and more perfect cure than anything we can find within ourselves. He tells us to look to him in faith and believe. Look to the cross of Jesus and be cleansed of your sins and be saved. Look to the Savior Jesus Christ. Lift up your heads and look to Jesus. You see, for we have all been affected by the poison of sin, but in faith we can look to Jesus, who is the ultimate antidote. Just as the ancient Israelite looked in faith to the snake on a pole for healing, you can look to the Savior on the cross to heal us from the poison of sin. Just as the ancient Israelite was required to look in faith at the bronze serpent, so too can you now look in faith at the crucified Christ to receive the healing of new birth and eternal life and the gift of salvation. So in faith, friends, look to Jesus, look upon the cross, be cleansed of your sins and live. Look to Jesus and live. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that Though in the Bible we read of stories of your wrath and of your anger towards sin and against sin, we know that it is in your holiness that that is the wrath that we all deserve, for we have all fallen short of the glory of God. And that is the very judgment that we deserve. But, oh God, we know that you in your grace and in your mercy, have provided a way out, have provided a cure for the fiery bite of the poison of sin. And that cure was in Christ Jesus, your son who you sent to die and in three days resurrect for our sake. And through him, you defeated death 
and you've given us the gift of eternal life once and for all. So God, would you help us to look to the cross, to look and live, to gaze upon the cross of Christ and to see our sins nailed upon that wooden cross that you have provided salvation, you have provided rescue for each and every one of us who in faith turns and looks. So, oh God, would you help these truths be sown into our hearts as we leave these church doors, as we go into our weeks, as we go into our workplaces, our schools, our families, our friends. May these truths ring ever true in our hearts. So, oh God, would you bless this congregation, would you bless this community of brothers and sisters who've gathered under your name, under no other name but yours. Would you have been honored and praised and worshipped today? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.